0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, we've been going through the book of Acts passage by passage, and this morning the next passage we come to is Acts 10. 34 through 48. You know, D.L. Moody famously said that the Bible was given not to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. And I agree. Something's wrong if we're just reading the Bible to acquire information as an end in itself. Our ultimate goal shouldn't be information, but rather transformation. So whenever we read a passage of the Bible, whether it's here on Sundays or on our own throughout the week, we should always be seeking to apply what we read to our lives. However, here's the thing. I think a lot of Christians lack a full understanding of what application looks like. I think a lot of them think of application merely in terms of uh, maybe coming up with some specific life action steps and then essentially adding those things to their daily to-do list. So, for example, if they read a narrative in the Bible about Jesus being kind to someone, let's say, they might seek to apply that to their lives by making a mental note to try to be kind, To a person they encounter that day. Or maybe if they read about an Old Testament prophet being very bold, maybe they'll they'll try to write down a personal goal to be more bold in their gospel witness. And let me be clear that there's nothing wrong with either of those things. Those are both very legitimate ways to apply the Bible. And the instinct behind that approach to application is a good instinct. After all, James one twenty two tells us that we're supposed to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. That's right. So some would say every time we read the Bible, we should always come away from that time with at least one specific application to our lives. Some item, no matter how small, that we add to our to-do list. Yet even though there's certainly a lot of good In that approach to application, that approach in itself isn't enough. It's not complete. Because transformation in our lives is a lot more complex phenomenon than that approach assumes. True and lasting transformation just isn't that straightforward. An author named David Mathis uh, elaborates on this. In his book, Habits of Grace, which also draws on John Piper's insights, uh, Mathis observes that the vast majority of our lives is lived spontaneously. Just think about all of the thousands and thousands of decisions that you and I make each day. 99% of those daily decisions are made without much prior reflection at all. We just do things and say things without thinking about them all that much. So for example, let's say you're in a conversation with someone, right? How, just how weird would it be for you to have to pause during that conversation, like every 10 seconds in order to take a break and pray about what you're going to say next? Right? Like the person asks you how you're doing, and so you've got to take a time out, and you've got to, you've got to have a little prayer huddle with yourself and figure out what you're going to, how you're going to respond to that. And then they ask you about the weather. So again, you've got to take a time out and prayerfully consider what you're going to say about the weather. Right? That's not humanly possible to, to prayerfully consider every single decision you make throughout the course of an average day. Like you, you just can't live that way, right? And so that's why Mathis says that the majority of our lives is lived spontaneously and that 99% of our daily decisions are made without much prior reflection at all. Like we just say things and do things, not because we've given careful consideration to each of those words and actions, but rather because of the kind of person that we are. Or to be more specific, the kind of person we've become. Jesus teaches in Luke six forty five that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Words just kind of come out of us because of the kind of person we are and the kind of heart we have. So here's what that means for our efforts to apply the Bible. You can see it up on the screen here. Our primary goal in reading the Bible shouldn't be merely coming up with a list of specific applications that we add to our to-do list, but rather allowing the things we read to shape us into a more Christ-like person. Again, our primary goal and reading the Bible shouldn't be merely coming up with a list of specific applications to add to our to-do list, but rather allowing the things we read to shape us into a more Christ-like person. Because remember, it's impossible to consider each individual decision we'll make throughout the day. There's thousands of decisions. Therefore, we should endeavor to become the kind of person who will instinctively make more Christ-like decisions. And here's the key to understand. That inward transformation happens as we behold the glory of God in the pages of Scripture. We're transformed into a more godly kind of person who will instinctively live a more godly life As we behold the glory of God in the pages of scripture. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Paul writes that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So how does that say we're transformed? What is it that that has that transforming effect on us? It's beholding the glory of God. Of the Lord. We become what we behold. So the most important thing we can do when we read the Bible is to seek to encounter God. And to behold his glory and to to just be astonished all over again. At the wonders of his grace. That's the kind of Bible application that's most critical for us to focus on. Just let your heart marinate in the glory of God and the wonders of grace, and that'll transform you, right? It'll make you into a different and more Christ-like person with the result that you'll instinctively live in a more Christ-like way. The transformation you experience in your heart will spill over into your life and will shape those Thousands upon thousands of decisions you make over the course of an average day. So, to be clear, don't shy away from specific applications of Scripture. Right? Those specific action steps of doing this and avoiding that are still very good and appropriate and necessary. So, keep coming up with them, right? By all means, write down specific things. Specific ways in which you want to live differently. But just recognize that that's only a part of good Bible application. Ultimately, you should seek to behold the glory of God and the wonders of grace and thereby become a different kind of person who will instinctively live in a more Christ-like way. And even though we should do that to one degree or another in every biblical passage, I believe the passage before us this morning, Acts 10 34 through 48, is an especially good passage for us to approach in that way. Last week, we saw earlier in the chapter how God uh, sent the Apostle Peter to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius in order to share the gospel with him. And uh, Cornelius was a Gentile, uh, like I said, and uh, Again, if you don't know, a Gentile is simply someone who's not a Jew. And Peter was astonished that God would lead him to the house of a Gentile because, just to be honest, Peter had some significant racial biases that were virtually universal among the Jews of his day. But God corrected Peter's thinking. So that he confesses in verses 34 and 35, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In other words, salvation is available for anyone of any culture or race or nationality who fulfills the requirements of verse 35. They have to fear God and do what is right which entails embracing the gospel and trusting in Jesus. And then the subsequent verses we see Peter explaining to Cornelius and the others who were gathered there what they need to know in order to be saved. And by the way, this is one of the most clear and complete gospel presentations we find in the entire book of Acts, perhaps even in the entire New Testament. And one thing that sticks out to me as as The most notable feature of this presentation is that it revolves around Jesus. It's all about him. So if you're taking notes, the main idea this morning is very simple. The gospel is a message about Jesus. Hard to imagine a simpler statement than that. The gospel is a message about Jesus. And yet, strangely enough, many professing Christians seem to lose sight of that reality in a variety of different ways. And so it's a a simple statement, but as we're going to see as we continue on, it's perhaps deceptively simple in certain respects. So let's just walk through this passage and see what it says about Jesus. And again, as we do this, let me encourage you to let these truths sink into your soul this morning and to shape you into the kind of person that God wants you to be. In verse 36, Peter describes God's message to Israel as the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. That's what the word gospel literally means. Gospel refers to good news. The gospel isn't as many assume, a set of moralistic guidelines for the way we should live, but rather a report, right? It's news, it's propositional truth of certain realities and truths. And as we see here, perhaps the most central of those realities is peace through Jesus Christ. Think about that. Peace through Jesus Christ. This mention of peace presupposes a a situation of enmity. The alarming reality that we all have to face is that every single person in this world is born into a state of enmity with God. The Bible says that we have sinful hearts, which lead us to live sinful lives. And, As a result of this sin, both in our hearts and in our lives, there's judgment, right? Our sins cry out for God's judgment. It's like we're going through our lives, guys, on death row. It's only a matter of time until we get the judgment that our sins deserve in hell. For all eternity. So you understand our situation. It couldn't be more desperate. So that's the bad news. The enmity that exists between us and God. The good news though. Is that God's graciously provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. A way for us to be at peace with him. Even though we don't deserve it. And in fact, we've done everything to not deserve it. God the Father sent Jesus, his Son, to come to this earth and to die on the cross and thereby suffer the punishment that our sins deserved. Jesus endured God the Father's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. And as a result of that, God's justice can be satisfied and we can enjoy a peace with God that would otherwise be impossible. And that peace, understand, comes not through our striving, but rather through Jesus alone, his work, his merit, his achievements. And through Jesus, we can not only be forgiven of our sins, but even adopted into God's family as his own son's and daughters, the Bible says. So this is a peace that, it just couldn't be more comprehensive. It consists not only in the absence of enmity, but also in the enjoyment of relationship. And this peace with God is also the key that unlocks the door to, well, number one, peace with each other, which is something our society could certainly use right now. As well as, number two, peace within ourselves. You know, it seems like more than ever these days, people are plagued with anxiety. They're functioning in a state of anxiety almost all the time. And contrary to what many people often assume, the ultimate answer to that anxiety isn't an endless series of therapy sessions or taking pills to to take the edge off of things as helpful as those things might be during certain seasons of our lives rather it's first and ultimately jesus who's the answer through jesus we can experience an inward peace that's far superior to anything this world has to offer a peace that's rooted in the reality of a reconciled relationship to God and that is experienced day by day through the continual work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. This is the peace Jesus offers. Peace with God, peace with one another, and peace within ourselves. And no wonder Jesus is referred to in Isaiah 9, 6 as the Prince of Peace. Then moving forward in Acts 10, right after Peter speaks of peace through Jesus Christ, he says of Jesus that he is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of everything. There isn't one square inch of this earth or one person on this earth or one molecule in this entire universe that Jesus can't point to and say, that's mine. It was created by my power. It exists for my glory and it must do as I command. That's what it means to be Lord of all. And notice here, in this text, what, what city Peter's in as he's saying all of this, and also the person to whom he's saying. Peter was in the city called Caesarea, named after the Roman emperor, and which was the, the seat of the Roman authority in that region. He's also saying all of this to a centurion in the Roman army, who would have been uh, obviously expected to be quite loyal to the emperor. And yet Peter still tells him straight up that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord of all. Paul says it this way. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Friends, what a blessing that one so righteous and good and wise and wonderful in every way sits on the throne of this universe and that his throne is eternal. Like understand he doesn't, have to worry about seeking re-election. He doesn't have to worry about what popular opinion polls say. And his throne will never be overthrown. Jesus is and will forever continue to be Lord of all. As Paul says so eloquently in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God has exalted him Peter tells his listeners in verses 37 and 38 that you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. In other words, Jesus was the genuine Messiah predicted throughout the Old Testament and God the Father bore witness to his legitimacy by empowering him through the Holy Spirit to perform miracles. Now, of course, in his deity, Jesus was fully capable of performing miracles in his own power. But part of the mystery of God becoming man, what theologians call the incarnation, part of the mystery of that is Jesus humbling putting himself in a position of dependence on the other members of the Trinity. But the point here is that Jesus was the genuine Messiah. He was marked with God the Father's seal of approval. And as the, the very title Christ indicates, Jesus was the anointed one set apart for God's purposes. And in his fulfillment of that calling, Peter says that Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He was sovereign and supreme over nature, over disease, over demons, even over death itself. And yet he also cared for people. Like genuinely cared for them. Even in situations where Jesus was, in his humanity at least, must have been utterly exhausted. He was constantly, it says, doing good for people. Like no matter how busy he was, and I'm sure the demands of his time must have been quite significant, Jesus always had time for people always had time to minister to them and to help them and to care for them. By all accounts, by any measure you use, Jesus lived the most astounding life of love this world has ever known. Nobody in this entire world has ever lived a life of such love and the greatest example of that is mentioned in verse 39 where peter describes how jesus uh, how the jews put jesus to death by hanging him on a tree that's a reference to deuteronomy 21:23 where it states that anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed by god and like we already said that's exactly what happened jesus endured the curse of God the Father's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. And that's all the more amazing when you consider that Jesus did that, not for people who were lovable and deserving, but rather for people who were wretched and rebellious. As Romans 5, 7, and 8 says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And guys, who has ever seen love like this? And Peter then describes in verses 40 and 41 how God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So unlike all other religious leaders who have ever lived, Jesus didn't stay in the grave when he died. Instead, he showed his supremacy even over death itself by rising from the dead. Peter then explains in verses 42 and 43 that he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So part of Jesus being Lord of all, as Peter described him a few verses ago, is that he's judge of both the living and the dead. That is, of everyone. Court will one day be in session. And not one person who's ever lived will escape this appointment with uh, divine justice. Even though it might seem like so many people in this world get away with so many things that won't ultimately be the case. One day all wrongs will be righted and all wrongdoers will be punished. When Jesus exercises his authority as judge of the living and the dead and that might be a, a terrifying thought for us as well were it not for the fact that as peter starts states in the latter part of verse 43 that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name no matter what we've done or what messes we've made all of our sins It can be washed away. As God states in Isaiah 118, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's possible through Jesus and him alone. But as Peter says, we have to believe in him and recognize that this forgiveness of sins, it comes through his name. So that's the message that Peter preached and that Cornelius and the others who were there embraced. The passage then records the Holy Spirit being poured out on these new Gentile converts, which was undoubtedly uh, evidenced by them speaking in tongues, in order to just make it clear that these were indeed genuine Christians and that they should be regarded and accepted as part of the Christian community. So, this event is often referred to in theological circles as the Gentile Pentecost. For the first time, it becomes clear. That the gospel isn't just for Jews, but it's for Gentiles as well. The Gentiles are, are then baptized into the Christian community. Yet the only way any of this is possible is through Jesus. He's the centerpiece of Peter's message. And it's his glory that outshines everything else that we find here. I'm thinking about us in our lives today. Basking in the light of this glory is the key to personal transformation. You know, there are certainly many different specific applications and action steps that we could glean from this passage. And there's certainly a place for those. But I believe the way this passage can have the most profound effect on us is if we just let our minds and hearts just marinate in what we see here about Jesus. Soak it all in. As Jesus himself says, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Drink deeply from Jesus this morning. Let your soul be satisfied with the rivers of living water that are found in him. That, more than anything, is what will shape you and transform you to be more like him. It's also what will motivate you to live for Jesus, even when it's difficult, even when it involves renouncing sin. You know, one of the realities in our lives, this side of heaven, is that we struggle against sin. It's a daily battle in which we're called to put to death the sinful desires of our hearts, as Paul says in Romans 8, 13. And yet contrary to what many Christians often assume, the way to win that battle isn't to just grit our teeth and try really hard to overcome those sinful desires, all right? But rather to be so captivated by Jesus that sin simply isn't that appealing or desirable anymore. I once heard it compared to some of the characters from ancient Greek mythology. First, there's Odysseus, whom Homer writes about in his epic poem, The Odyssey. In his travels, Odysseus sails past uh, an island of these creatures called the Sirens, whose beautiful singing would often seduce sailors and lure these sailors to their death on the rocks that surrounded the island. And even though Odysseus knew the dangers of this, he was also curious about what the song of these sirens sounded like. And so, before his ship came within earshot of the sirens, Odysseus had all of the sailors plug their ears with beeswax so they couldn't hear the seductive music of these deadly creatures. But, he didn't plug his own ears. Instead, he had his men tie him to the mast of the ship and ordered them not to untie him no matter how much he begged them to do so until they were safely away. So sure enough, the ship sailed past the sirens and Odysseus heard their singing and he strained with all his might against the ropes that bound him. Thankfully though, the Ropes held tight and the ship sailed safely past the island and until the sirens couldn't be heard anymore. So that's one story. Yet there's another story in Greek mythology of a man named Jason sailing past this same island, the island of the sirens. And in this story, rather than using ropes to bind himself, Jason has one of his companions play an instrument called the lyre when they get close to the sirens this beautiful melody from the skilled musician drowns out the siren's song with the result that the ship sails safely past the island and continues without incident on his journey. Now, here's the point. All too often, we find ourselves in the position of Odysseus. Our hearts Are pulled with a mighty force by sinful temptations. Sin seems so appealing, so seductive, and leaves us straining against the ropes. And let's be honest many times the ropes aren't enough to hold us. We often break free of the ropes and follow that seductive. Song of the Sirens to our own shame and misery. But if we'd simply have our eyes opened to behold the glory of Jesus, and similar to Jason, to have the Christ centered symphony of the gospel playing in our ears, the result would be quite different. That beautiful melody of Jesus. And his glory and grace would drown out the song of the sirens. And we wouldn't even feel like we're missing out on anything. But would simply rejoice in the treasure that we found in Jesus. That is how to successfully overcome sin in your life. Don't merely try to resist sinful desires. Instead, let those desires be eclipsed by a greater desire that dominates your heart. An all-consuming desire for Jesus. I'd like to conclude this morning with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I know that might surprise many of you, but what can I say? The guy said a lot of things that are worth quoting. Spurgeon states, last Sunday night, I had a text which mastered me. No one knows the son except the father. That's from Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. I told the people that poor sinners who had gone to Jesus and trusted him, thought they knew him, but that they knew only a little of him. Saints of 60 years experience who have walked with him every day think they know him but they are only beginners yet. The perfect spirits before the throne who have been for 5,000 years perpetually adoring him, perhaps think they know him, but they do not to the full. No one knows the son except the father. He is so glorious that only the infinite God has full knowledge of him. Therefore, there will be no limit to our study or narrowness in our line of thought if we make our Lord the great object of all our meditations. What a thought. Again, that Jesus is so glorious that only the infinite God has full knowledge of him and therefore there will be no limit to our study or narrowness in our line of thought if we make our Lord the great object of all our meditations. Is Jesus the great object of your meditations this morning?